and welcome to a special episode 12 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, our last episode of the year and a special one, it has to be said, coming to you from the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne Golf Club. It's a somewhat truncated introduction this week. Recording conditions aren't what they normally are for us. Obviously, I'm sitting here in the media centre at RM. However, a couple of things we must mention. Don't forget, 30% off gift vouchers from the golfsociety.com.au. That's for talking golf listeners only. The special page where you can access those is in the show notes. The only way you can get it is in the show notes. The show notes, for those not familiar, are directly under the bit where you press play. So do yourself a favour, grab yourself a Christmas present, 30% off discount uh, gift vouchers from the golfsociety.com.au. Also, make sure to visit the Talking Golf Network for more excellent golf podcasts, including Feed the Ball, State of the Game, and On the Tee with Dr. P, the latest edition to the rotation. As always, get in touch on Twitter to me at at Rod underscore Murray or Adrian at at Adrian Logue. Derek isn't with us this week because of time differences, but you can also get him at at Feed the Ball if you have anything to say. That's the administration out of the way. Let's get on with episode 12. I'll start by introducing my co-host for the day, Adrian Logue. Adrian, it's a bit like old times with just the two of us today. I guess we've done this a few times, just the two of us, but it's a, it's a real privilege to be just doing this with you, Rod, a multiple media award winner. <laughs> Bugger off, uh, peanut. <laughs> the, the recent winner of the Tom Ramsey Excellence Award for outstanding work over the past year. And yes. indeed, it has been outstanding. I'm sure there was daylight second, Rod. Oh. <laughs> You're Very most of you. deserving winner of that award. It's extraordinarily kind of you. I can't wonder whether it reflects more on my colleagues or myself, but uh, we'll leave that alone. It's very kind of you. Thank you for... Uh, and we did win... Well deserved. We did Seriously win, uh, we did win one of the, the oral, best oral presentation for a podcast episode I did for The Thing About Golf, a podcast I do for Golf Australia magazine. I thought that was nice too for an yep. interview I did with Richard. Richard Sattler, the owner of Barn Boogle Junes. Enough of all that nonsense, much in all as I like to bask in my own glory. It is fantastic. Um, I'm getting some reflected glory out of it. You are getting some reflected glory. You can say that you know me, Adrian, and that's nice yep. <laughs> for you. Before we come to I've done an interview down here this morning, Adrian, with uh, Andrew Thompson, Peter Thompson's son. He was a guest with us on ICEC Golf podcast. I think it was the last episode of the ICEC Golf podcast. And another member here who's a very active member at Royal Melbourne called Tony Rule. He's on the uh, the, I can't remember. He tells us what committees he's on in the intro. It's a special place, this Adrian, and to sit. We went. We recorded in the the women's lounge. Andrew Thompson mm-hmm. had never been in there. I think it's an off limits area generally to the male members of the club. Okay. But with all the infrastructure here this week, we went in there. Lovely little room and nice and quiet. Is that, that sort of semi outdoor room around the front of the clubhouse? There, there's some really nice spaces in there. They've kind of done some it, yeah. sort of soft refurbishment, haven't they? There's Yes, and it's a it's a delightful little space. It has to be said, yeah. it was a terrific place to uh, to record. And that's my phone beeping in there. I don't know what that's about. Um, so yes, we recorded in there, and it was fantastic. Had a bit of, and you've had a chance to have a listen to the to the interview that I do. And it's a little bit different, I think, to what most of the our other podcasts and magazines are doing in terms of the president's cup. Royal Melbourne's the star of the show, but I'm not sure that the club so much as what I tried to get from the guys in this interview, sort of why the club does this. Lots of private clubs in the world would never put on an event like this, Adrian. I think it's a real testament and a credit to Royal Melbourne that they often host big tournaments like this. And that was one of the things I wanted to chat to the guys about uh, this morning. So let's have a listen to that and then we'll come back and you and I, I'm sure, will have some reactions to what those two said and some thoughts about the President's Cup and what we might see unfold this week. So we'll be back shortly here on Good Good Golf Podcast. Well, welcome, gents, to a fairly <clears throat> special edition of the podcast. Let's have you identify yourself. Let's start with Andrew Thompson. Andrew, name, rank and serial number here at Royal Melbourne. Well, I'm an ordinary member of Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Uh, I'm the inaugural uh, chairman of the newly formed Japan Hickory Golf Association. And I guess by profession, I'm a retired legislator living in obscurity in Japan which barely touches on your resume, but we'll go with that for the moment. Tony Rule, if I could get you to give us the name, rank and serial number drill. Okay, Rod. Uh, I'm, I've been a member here at Royal Melbourne since the early 80s, and uh, I'm on the council, which is effectively the board of the club. Uh, I'm also on the uh, committee of the Golf Society of Australia, which looks after the, uh, the memorabilia and archives of Golf Australia. Uh, so, yeah, that's my role in golf at the moment. Fantastic. Well, welcome to you both. I'm sure your resume is a lot longer than that as well, Tony. I'm not as familiar with it. Andrew, we've 
We're here at the President's Cup, which is the most modern of golf constructs, but we're here, of course, at Royal Melbourne, which is probably the very seat of world-class golf here in Australia. And your ties to the club go back an awfully long way. So before we come to the present, what are your first memories of Royal Melbourne? And we know that your dad had very close ties to the club and the course as well. Yeah, I came uh, often, I think, as a child, probably until the age of eight or nine. I couldn't remember it very well. But, you know, childhood uh, summer days or late spring through to really early autumn, uh, that that was a time when Dad was generally at home in Melbourne. So if he was playing an exhibition here or occasionally a tournament, there weren't that many professional tournaments at Royal Melbourne in the 60s, but they became more frequent in the 70s. So I'd come uh, and watch. Uh, I was too young to caddy. Uh, so I was really behind the ropes, uh, generally being shepherded uh, by my mother, uh, in order not to cause my father too much annoyance or distraction. Uh, I occasionally broke through and did cause him some distraction, I think, but he managed to overcome it from time to time. No doubt a source of some joy. Knowing the little I do about your dad, he was never one to put the game as a more important thing in life than it should be, so I'm sure that that was all quite acceptable. What are your first memories of Royal Melbourne? <clears throat> Pardon me, Tony. You joined in the 80s, you said, but I would imagine that your memories of Royal Melbourne go back much further. One doesn't just decide one day they'll join Royal Melbourne, do they? There's a reason that you aspire No, no for that's that. right. And my father was a member. But my, my, first, um, my first memory is actually the World Cup in 1972. So I would have been 11 at the time. I'd been playing the game for a couple of years. And my father brought me down. And I remember the two of the stars in the field that year were Tony Jacklin and Roberto Di Vincenzo. So they were the two major champions in the field. I'm not sure if Andrew's father was uh, playing in 1972. He may or may not have been, but what was interesting was Jacqueline was an open champion, I think, by then. And after that match, uh, the World Cup here, uh, Jacqueline stayed on here in Melbourne for about another month. I think in order to play the tournaments in New Zealand that followed those that were taking place in Victoria or New South Wales. So he was down at our beach house uh, at Portsea uh, over that period and um, uh, he uh, ran a little short of cash uh, as it happened. Uh, In those days the Open champion wasn't immediately showered with money by sponsors and so forth. Uh, So I have a feeling that he did stay at our house there over the summer um, for want of the budget to stay anywhere else but he was a nice fella and I remember him as a sort of a you know a British or English friend of dad's and so they'd go and play at Sorrento Golf Club or wherever uh, really over the summer uh, until the tournaments uh, came about that they could go and earn some more cash. To those whose world consists of podcasts and the internet, that's an unthinkable set of circumstances. An open champion, Tony, imagine, who didn't have the money to stay wherever they wanted. I I think Ken Blakely lent him $500 or something. (laughs) uh, Fantastic stuff. Well, well, it does remind me of the story when your father won won an open and uh, he was lent a jacket by a Royal Melbourne member and the jacket was returned, and the cheque was still in the uh, in the coat, in the pocket of the coat. Yeah, they found it in the Turak dry cleaners. <laughs> That's a fantastic story, and I've always been a fan of that story as well. Let's fast forward a bit. So, the, <clears throat> you touched on the history of professional golf, I guess, Andrew, here, and the World Cup was a very important part of Royal Melbourne being exposed to the world. I guess we now see it take its place. People from all over the world are intrigued by Royal Melbourne as a course and a venue. I feel a bit the same way about Augusta National. As members, do you feel that the rest of us golf fans also feel a bit of a sense of ownership of Royal Melbourne as well? It plays such an important part in the golf landscape. Does that make sense, the question I'm asking, Tony? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, uh, There was an interesting article Mike Clayton wrote uh, yesterday about the course. John Huggan wrote the story quoting Mike. Is that the one you mentioned? No, it was Mike Mike wrote his own. Mike, Mike wrote one I... Was having a oh, he did too, yes, sorry, in the opposition I magazine, the, the one the, I work the, for. The, the, you know, talking about under, undervalued golf courses and he put Royal Melbourne in, in that category as underappreciated, I think was the word that he used. But um, 
as a club, we think it's important for us to be involved in the development of the game. Uh, we think that we've got the best course, and certainly an event of this scale, there's not too many courses in Australia that, that could handle it with all the infrastructure and everything like that. It's, uh, I was speaking to the uh, Tracy Veal from the PGA Tour yesterday, and she's running the media centre. There's 527 accredited journalists here this week, which is more than they had two years ago at Liberty Island. So it's good to know that the size of the event is still growing despite the fact that the, the, the history of the event is a bit lopsided, the to say the least. The infrastructure here this week is extraordinary, by the way. Just coming into the venue is, is staggering. <clears throat> Andrew, a lot of clubs play lip service to the notion of being a part of the development of the game. I feel like Royal Melbourne, it, it doesn't. It's a genuine feeling from the club. You, you don't, It's an inconvenience for the membership to host an event like this, isn't it? In a sense, but it's also a pleasure uh, and it's a privilege. So uh, what this club really means, I think, it dominates uh, golf course architecture in Australia and the Southern Hemisphere, for that matter, uh, really outside Britain and the United States. Um, there's not really a lot of golf courses that stand uh, scrutiny like this one does, it's composite course. So in that sense, uh, certainly from my friends among the members, there's a feeling, I think, of some obligation uh, that we have to provide the course. Um, well, it's not to say we have to, that uh, we're glad to provide the course for certain events. And no less so with these professional events like the President's Cup, uh, the amateur events are very important too. So Asian Amateur Championship, the Master of the Amateurs, the annual one that's perhaps small in scale, but it's bred a few champions along the way. So a couple in the field here this week. Yeah, the Bryce and I know Bryce and Ricky Fowler both have played the yeah, Master of the Amateurs. Correct. So. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah. probably gives them a little bit of an unfair advantage here at the President's Cup. Maybe we might rethink that, Tony, the invitations we're giving to the Master of the Amateurs. Well, well we, we did have earlier, uh, we've had the last Master of the Amateurs was here in January. And uh, one of the players that came out with was Matthew Wolf, and he uh, he's going to be huge. Um, I, the way he hits a golf ball, you just got to see it. It's amazing. The swing is unorthodox. The results are quite staggering, aren't they? The, the swing's unorthodox, but a bit like Fury, he gets in a great position when at at, at impact. Yeah, all good players do. I want to fast forward because, of course, the President's Cup is the, the topic du jour, topic of the day. Sadly, because of my technical incapabilities, Adrian can't be with us, but he's, he's sent through some questions, which I'll be intrigued to get you both to answer. I might not get through all of them, but this one, this one might be a good one to start with, with you, Andrew. Your favourite version of the composite course. We, of course, see 12 holes from the west and six holes from the east for the composite course, which is regarded as one of the very best in the world. But they're not the same... 12 and 6 each time around. I can never keep up with which composite course is which. What's your favourite version of the composite course, if you indeed have one? Uh, it's not so much the combination of the holes that make up the course. There are key holes there, um, what you might call sort of the noteworthy nightmares that uh, I hope the players endure. Uh, I mean, the drama of some of the holes more towards the middle of the layout, uh, where there are some steeper slopes. Uh, they're the ones that uh, are there uh, to test the players. And what I hope is that uh, the careful plan that each player presumably has for each hole uh, somehow fades or, or, or evaporates under the pressure <laughs> and an act of madness takes place. <laughs> a player thinks, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and he aims at the flag and disaster comes. That's, that's what I hope to see. Which is, of uh, course, the essence of the golf course, isn't it? It's what makes it the golf course is because wide fairways, good lies, and particularly better players get tempted to play shots that they shouldn't. Exactly, they'll have you know the the yardages and, and, and their their habit of being able to hit to exact distances and so forth. You know that's that's the 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 infrastructure of their mind, if you like. It's a clumsy phrase, but so that's there. Assume that's there for almost every shot, and then uh, in creeps you know, temptation, 
and uh, you know the little demon perches on sits there on their shoulder and says, as you said, you can do it. Give it a try. I can see the demon sitting on Andrew's shoulder, Tony. Has the demon sat on your shoulder at times? <laughs> <laughs> Too many to think, think about. Um, but it's it's interesting. I I was in 1988. Nicholas, the, the bicentennial classic was played here at Royal Melbourne. It was the first time that Nicholas actually played a tournament here. And there was an article written in The Age where Nicholas went through every shot on every hole. And the fifth uh, today, which is normally the seventh west, he said, don't care where the pin is, I'm just going to hit it over the corner of, of, of the front right bunker to the middle of the green. But, and, and he said also that the club is a, it's a seven iron. Now, if, if Tiger or any of these players today were to hit a 7-9, then they'd, be on, they'd airmail the green by about 30 metres. But you can bet your bottom dollar, every one of them will stand up on that tee and go straight at the pin. doesn't matter where it is. But, but if, you, if you miss on that green... There's some diabolical places to play from around that hole, aren't there, which well, can really... One of the most famous shots there in President's Cup was when... It might have been in Foursome's play that... Jeff Ogilvie's partner put him into the back left bunker, which is effectively unplayable. dead. Yeah. yeah, it's unplayable. And he held it. It's probably the only way the ball stayed on the green. It hit the flagstick and went in. It's funny you should say that. We spoke with Patrick Cantley yesterday and I said to him, did you have any favourite holes? Which is an unfair question for someone who's toured the course once with all the hoopla associated with the President's Cup. He said, I can't remember the numbers, but I really like the par threes. He said, there's, there's that little one up the hill. It's only about 140 yards. So he immediately picked out the dangers and the, the beauty of that hole just intuitively. So that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, well, Tiger actually wrote about that hole. In, in, he wrote a book a couple of years ago, and he said it's the scariest 155 yards you'll ever see. Yeah, and he's absolutely right. In fact, I, I seem to recall in the 2011 Cup, he played Aaron Baddeley in the singles, Tiger, and if I'm not mistaken, yep. he might have hit a punch seven iron at that right. hole, okay. which is one of the joys of Tiger is that he can well, hit. When we have shots. this, Andrew mentioned the Master of the Amateurs uh, earlier, but when when we have uh, that event here, often seven is the hardest hole. That doesn't surprise because for, as in terms of a scoring average, if you don't make three, the chances are you're making five. Yeah. There's not many fours there. If you miss three, you're, you're looking most likely at a double bogey. So, um, Well, we, I should add uh, for the benefit of your sainted listeners, um, that Tony and I play the first nine of the West course here with Hickory Clubs quite often. Mm. We've been doing that the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, playing that first nine, you get quite a lot of the composite course holes, uh, including uh, seven West. And uh, for us, it's generally a pretty strong mashy niblick up to the left-hand side of the green, or if the winds are strong southerly, you probably play a mashy. Uh, you sort of try and float it in the wind and drop it, and then it's two putts across, generally where the pin is more or less in the middle of uh, the green there. But as you say, uh, for the players, they look at the plateau up on the right-hand side, right behind that monstrous bunker, and try and stop it right there where the pin positions are. That's theoretically possible with the Hickory Club, but we've never seen it done. <laughs> and, we're, are, and, and we're the best around. That's right. Theories are wonderful, aren't they, Andrew? But let me say that quite frankly. <laughs> we, we, we are in the presence of the Japanese champion. Yes, the reigning Japanese well, champion. Andrew right. re- regularly undersells himself, and I'm sure he does the same with well, his Hickory a, golf capabilities. A few, no few doubt. moments of brilliance early in the year. Even a blind squirrel trophy. occasionally finds an acorn. Is that how they say it, Andrew? Uh Question two from Adrian. This is an interesting one because I, remember I interviewed Richard Forsyth at length about six weeks ago. Terrific fellow. And he told me some really interesting bits and pieces about the course. Adrian says he's been told there's one little area of the heath that might contain a hundred or more species of dwarf plants and grasses. Is that true? I don't doubt that necessarily, Tony. Do you know? Him? Yeah, we, every, uh, I think it's around October, we do a wild uh, flower walk. Uh, so not just for the members, but also for interested people. And... Uh, we had one of the botanists from the Royal Botanic Gardens came out here and he found a particularly rare orchid that he hadn't seen for... There's some quite important species in there. Absolutely, isn't there? yeah. And a lot of the seedlings go... There's a, a Indigenous Heathland uh, nursery around the corner in Reserve Road 
and they get a lot of uh, the, the seeds and, and the like from here. Mm. And a lot of the other golf clubs go to that nursery to, to, to establish their own heathlands. There's a, there's a delicious prospect of other local clubs having a bit of Royal Melbourne in them, isn't there? I think that's just a lovely lovely sort of touch. This is a sideline, Andrew, but I know that's something that we discussed on the I Seek Golf podcast when you came on and spoke to myself and Adrian. The image of golf is one that needs work amongst non-golfers, and these are the sorts of things they don't know about. That's a real public service that Royal Melbourne does that it doesn't need to. Just that one little thing each October. I was really surprised and heartened when Richard told me about that day each year, because that is a service to the community, and Golf is seen as using all sorts of resources, and then some, some of those criticisms are fair, but there's a little case of, of golf giving back a little bit in terms of the environment. We won't get The game and Royal Melbourne probably won't get much credit for that, though. Well, what's interesting, I guess, is, is you look at the public courses around Melbourne, and they generally don't have a budget for such uh, care, uh, horticultural care, I guess, but they could do it. And... Uh, for example, Sandringham uh, Golf Links, just across the road uh, from here, is being rebuilt now. And uh, if there was some way of allowing volunteers to help uh, cultivate and maintain that kind of heathland at a public course where anyone could go any day of the week and see it, play over it, that would be a better thing. So what Royal Melbourne's done over the years, I, I think, has provided an example of what can be done elsewhere whereas most of the public courses, by their very nature, have a contracted maintenance company come in and mow the fairways, prepare the greens, and really that's that. Uh, whereas if they were beautified by volunteer effort, and it doesn't cost much, it's more a matter of time and who's going to do it, then Melbourne would have uh, double the quality of golf generally than it does now. The elusive win-win is what you've outlined there, Andrew. A very difficult proposition to come by in practice, isn't it? We talk about a lot of win-wins, but that's a, a classic one. Uh, you mentioned Sandringham, and one of Adrian's questions is, in fact, about Sandringham. I think Robin took over the lease of Sandringham some time ago. Just to perhaps clarify, what is the relationship between the two and what he really wants to know? What responsibilities do Royal Melbourne have for Sandringham and what does it mean to Australian golf to have a high-quality public sandbelt course? Of course, Sandringham's undergoing a major renovation and one would expect that a vastly superior golf facility will emerge at the other end. So what's happening over at Sandringham is that uh, there is going to be an elite driving range built. It'll be, I believe it's about 320 metres long or something like that. There'll be no need for a... Should last at least a couple of years, that, that Tony, should, you would yeah, think. That, that should, yeah. Is Bryson DeChambeau hitting over the net at the range he, here he, yesterday? He hit one over the range, over the net, I beg your pardon. Uh, there was a little bit of wind helping and the tee was slightly forward of being at the back of the driving range. Uh, the, the, the net at the back of the driving range was increased in height for the tournament and the PGA Tour analysed all the ball flights of all the top players and the only one player's ball flight would have cleared the back of the net and that was McElroy's and obviously he's not playing here this week. Sadly, Brexit might do us a favour there but we'll see what unfolds. <laughs> yeah, but, but, um, so, but Bryson did put one over the fence and, uh, and then he and Kuchar went back in the afternoon to try and uh, achieve that feat again, but uh, the wind was against them and uh, they couldn't they couldn't do it. But yes, millionaires he, behaving like small children yeah, is a wonderful well, notion, he, isn't he it? Put it over the fence <laughs> and then he said, "Oh, I better put the driver away." And then um, and then he said, "No, no, you keep going." We found the ball. It was a Bridgestone ball. So there you go. <laughs> well, do you think that, that that sort of subtlety, uh, to coin a phrase, yeah. is going to help him in the President's Cup? I don't think so. We'll, we'll, well come well, to that in a point, moment. That, you know, that's Adrian's next question, Andrew, which we'll come to. But you were talking about Sandringham and the relationship between yeah, the sorry, two. Sorry, look, the, the state government has, has thrown, oh, I shouldn't say thrown, but they've invested heavily in the redevelopment of, of Sandringham. Uh, it's it's a great piece of ground over there, particularly uh, the ground closer to the bay. There's a bit of movement there. Mike Cocking's been doing the work. Uh, I think it's going to be a fantastic facility. Yes, we have the lease. Uh, the greens will be the same as Royal Melbourne Greens, Fescue Surrounds. It should be a fantastic uh, 
golf course. We've had a walk around it. And it Twelve, 12 holes, is it? No, it'll be 18. It will be 18? Yeah, okay. yeah. But it'll be... Uh, I think there's six par threes in it, but it will be 18 holes. Yes, that's yeah. I think what with par threes, two of the very best in the world, RM5 and 7 here. <laughs> yeah. You could play 18 of those and be happy, couldn't you? People yeah. get very yeah. locked into these notions. But what, what, what Sandringham does enable us to do is to host an event like this. There's car parking over there, TV production, the village, and and really it's that uh, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a good asset for us it's as a, a club. It's a big show this year, isn't it? I came in both ninety eight and twenty eleven, and this is not comparable in any way. Uh, just the entrance into the event is already a a bigger show than anything I've well, seen I, at the I, previous I, ones. I think it's thirty percent bigger than yeah. two thousand eleven. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me, Andrew. You alluded to this when we were discussing the. We've discussed the distance of the ball everybody has. We know that's an ongoing issue. Question from Adrian. Do we seriously think that any player is going to run the ball into any greens at Royal Melbourne? I fear they're going to be hitting wedges and all the strategy of the course might culminate in one or two shots all week, but the majority is just going to be boring, unmentionable. That's maybe a little bit strong, but is that a concern, given the distance the ball goes, that much of the strategy of Royal Melbourne is somewhat removed? Well, that's the same with any uh, great course in the world these days. Uh, they're all, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, a victim of uh, the advance of technology. So the turf care and the preparation for tournaments uh, has to adapt to that. Otherwise, as Adrian points out, um, a lot of the drama is going to evaporate from these matches. So... I guess there are things, uh, well, there are limits to what you could do with green speeds, uh, given the, the you know, Newton's laws. If the wind blows and <clears throat> the stimp meter measurement is what fourteen or fifteen or something, it's just impossible. You can't play. Uh, I like the, the the notion of some more sloping on the front or the edges of the green, such that if there's too much backspin on a pitch shot or an approach shot. Uh, the slope will then take it back off the green, like happens on six west here or the fourth hole. Is it uh, for the uh, four? Course? Yes, yeah, three, four, five. That's yeah, right. I saw that happen yesterday four, five, uh, yeah. during practice. Um, that the uh, shots were fired in at the centre of the green, and some were attempting to put it close to the flag over on the left. And sure enough, the backspin sort of caught, uh, and the ball just rolled back down to the fairway. So that's the kind of disaster that uh, you know, you'd hope would occur from time to time to make those riskier shots even more risky. Yeah, indeed. I think what's interesting about how far the ball goes and, and, and this discussion is that at this course, it's irrelevant on some of the holes. So the, uh, the sixth hole, which is 10 west, it's 290 metres, but it's so well protected around the green that you, you could all these players can hit it on the green, but holding mean, the green is a different shot. matter. Exactly and then right. where the ball ends up is it, it's not so you, you're going to be better just to play it how it's being played for since the hole was first built in 19. 26 or and the, the short grass around the greens is key to that, isn't it, Tony? If we had long rough around the edges or coals of no. all the greens, there would be yeah. no decision to make on no. 10 west. No. You would just knock it on the green, it would go six feet over into the long rough and you'd hit a bunker-style shot out of the long green. As it is now, it rolls down onto the 11th tee of 10. And, now you've got a problem. And, and it can keep rolling right through the 11th into the into the tee tree on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so There's a small sadistic part of most of us, isn't there, that enjoys watching a pro struggle in a situation like that. And I recall Dustin Johnson in 2011 hit it over the back of that green. And if my recollection's collect, correct, he'd had seven shots total when he told his opponent to pick his ball up and just move to the next. And yeah. it's not a nice feature of people, but there was some enjoyment in that, wasn't there? It's called schadenfreude. <laughs> That's right. Well, the, the, Amusement the, in others' misfortune. Yeah, to go back to the essence of it, though, uh, Alistair McKenzie uh, learnt how to disguise distances uh, to confuse uh, the naked eye uh, in the Boer War uh, in South Africa. He was served there as a doctor and he observed the artillery uh, people building little trenches and, and mounds uh, to try and confuse, in that case, the Boers who were firing back at him with uh, 
what must have been, I guess, short-range artillery. So in one of his books, uh, he described what he saw there, and then when he began to practice uh, golf architecture, he employed the same technique to try and trick people. So, you know, the yardage books, uh, the drone uh, surveys of the greens and all this sort of thing, you can provide a player with uh, perfect data, but uh, data doesn't prevent uh, the risk-taking or, or the act of madness that must have overcome Dustin Johnson, that he did over the green. That's, that's from what memory we're here to see. A, from memory, he might have even hit a two-iron over that cavernous bunker and run it short, and it, it ran through. The, the joy of that, I guess, though, Tony, is what we might have seen from Dustin Johnson over the back of the green, this is the appeal of Royal Melbourne, was a stunning flop shot that might have stopped within 10 feet of the hole and he might have made a birdie, which would have been equally enjoyable. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think that's what you will see around Royal Melbourne, that you want, with the normal PGA Tour stop or, for that matter, European Tour stop, you don't see a lot of variety of shots or options for the players to to play shots. I was watching uh, one of the Korean players uh, yesterday and back of the fifth, seven west that we've been talking about a bit, he took his rescue club, he's over the back of the green, he took his rescue club out to, to play a shot. And you, don't, you don't see a lot of professional golfers play that. Of course, Todd Hamilton made it famous mm. when he won his Open Championship uh, using that club. But you don't, you don't see it a lot. But I think with the, the tight fescue lies that you... You might see a bit of creativity with that club. The 60-degree wedge is not as comfortable off that as it no. is off the, the springier lines that we tend to see around the place. Yeah. Uh, that's the end of Adrian's question, so we'll shut the phone on Adrian. One that I particularly wanted to ask, I, I find Royal Melbourne a spiritual place. Every time I come here, I could happily watch other people play golf here my whole life and it wouldn't bother me because there's such a joy to the place and it's a, there's such a scale to the place. I can't decide, Andrew, if the if it's more impressive and better with all the grandstands and the infrastructure this week, which is extraordinary, or whether it's better when it's just the golf course as it sits so naturally in the landscape. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think about this week as you wander around? It's a completely different venue, obviously, this week with the grandstands and the, the tents. Yeah, it's, it's a series of theatres uh, with physical uh, infrastructure around greens, uh, the odd tee. Uh, there's a degree of uh, drama, I guess, just seeing these towering uh, stands and so forth. But it's the way it has to be. It's not like an, a course for the open where it's generally open with stands, uh, very few trees on those open courses at all. Uh, whereas Royal Melbourne does have plenty of tree canopy in between the holes. Probably too much, uh, but... It is what it is. Uh, so the drama is going to take place, uh, really, you know, tee to green, of course. And so we spectators watch it um, from wherever we can get a perch. And you know, a lot of people will be sitting in a tent somewhere watching it on television, of course. That's the way it is these days. But uh, out on some of the, the, the holes away from the central part of the course, the clubhouse and so forth, that's more traditional. You'll be able to stand on a mound somewhere and look across a swale and see them on the green not that far away. Uh, but the drama in these match play contests is going to come at about 16, isn't it, on average? Statistically, they say. 17 yeah. and 18 see very little use. 16 yeah. is usually around about mm-hmm. the turning point. For that. Do you have any, have any thoughts about that, Tony? You obviously see the course in all its guises. This is spectacular. I love to see it occasionally, but I wonder whether maybe there's a natural beauty to the golf course without well, all there of There is that. a natural beauty, and, and without the infrastructure, you know, personally, I think that that's much more appealing. But Can't have a President's Cup without it, though. No, correct, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. But what, what, what all this infrastructure does do is that, and I've been doing it a bit this week, is wandering around and climbing up to the top of the stands and taking photos and getting a different perspective of, of the golf course. So uh, I've, I've found that... Of You're right. I mean, no, normally you know you play it from ground level. Yeah. You're walking around and you know hitting your ball, but all of a sudden you get to sit up uh, three or four meters higher than you'd normally be, and that's special. That's you know, yeah. some yeah. drama in that. We've got 24 world-class golfers in this field, and that's a joy to watch any one of them play any time. If you're a golfer, you can't help but think it's fantastic. Royal Melbourne will undoubtedly be the course, the 25th player and of great interest to most sadly most will watch it on television tony sadly in as much as as good as television is even in 4k and on big screens you can't possibly 
feel and experience Royal Melbourne on a flat screen, can you? The, the place is just extraordinary. It is quite spiritual, isn't it? Well, the, the, what you won't get on TV that is the subtlety, the little mounds and hollows and and the movement in the ground. It's just not doesn't come through on TV. You have to really come out to the golf course and and experience that for yourself. And I, one of my favourite times down here is late in the evening when you see the shadows and you can see how much movement there is out there on the golf course. Always a beautiful time on any golf course, isn't it, Andrew? That sort of evening, early morning and evening when the light is coming from a, a lowish angle and you get the ground really speaks, doesn't it? It's, it touches the soul. Yeah, it does. And uh, it can also deliver an unexpected punishment to a you know, slightly poorly struck mashie. It was heading you know, really for heaven, right that special part of the green where it was intended to land and suddenly hit some little tiny mound you didn't see and <laughs> goddamn we're in the bunker with a, a niblick. What are we going to do, Tony? Well, from that one down, we're now looking at two down, Andrew. It's, it's an awful place to be. Well, it, it, it's, it's, in that sense, it's unpredictable and uh, that's why we like playing it with hickories. Yeah, uh, the original idea Tony had was to experience the course uh, when it was first created and he found the map of the original tees and put you know oh okay so you oh yeah oh you're yeah. recreating yeah we recreated wow. it as it was essentially opened wow uh, and then uh, we set out with a set of hickories and started playing it see what happens talking of grown men behaving like children and all the joy that comes with it and we've got two fine examples right here playing with hickories is uh, it, and I've Mike Cocking, I saw a quote from him. Often if he gets a job at a course that was built in the mm-hmm. 20s or whatever, he'll play it with hickories to try and get a better understanding of what the architect's intent was. Yeah. He's a very and good player, of course, Mike, yeah, and a very good player yeah, with hickory as well. Yeah, yeah, so... I he's, yet, he's yet to challenge me. No, well, of course. <laughs> we said he was good, Andrew, not special. <laughs> Difference. He's got a national champion. Between the top, that's exactly he, he, he's, yet, he's yet to meet the Niblick Samurai. So. <laughs> I love the idea. Prediction time, gentlemen. Andrew, I'm particularly interested in what you might have to say. I know you follow the golf closely. What, we, what are we likely to see this week? I guess the reality of the two teams, despite what we try and convince ourselves here, is that most of the 20 poor players play the same style of golf week in and week out. Yes. There's no home advantage in the course itself. Adam Scott may know a bit more. Ernie Els, the course record holder here at the Compass Course, no doubt has some advice to impart, but that advice is wonderful, but it doesn't help you hit the exact right spot on the green that you need to necessarily. What do you think we might see? Because these fa- players are fabulous to watch. Given all the nonsense about the ball and the rest of it, they're still fabulous to watch, aren't they? Yeah, the um, psychology of it, and that's all it is in match play. Uh, I mean, there's a mathematical score per hole, uh, but it's the psychology of it. Uh, Nico Hearn's story of uh, planning to play against Tiger Woods in match play and having a look at his record and seeing that uh, when... Woods was ahead. He almost never lost. So uh, he and his caddy figured out that if there was any way they could get one up within the first three or four holes, they had a chance. And I think both times he played Woods, the World Match Play Championship, that's exactly what he did. Um, uh, And having got one up, it it did rattle Woods. And uh, Nick managed to hang on. So in that sense, uh, it reminds me of a chapter uh, my father wrote in that book I told you about uh, The Secrets of Australian Golf, published in 1961. And he said, uh, I think, thinking of Royal Melbourne, uh, start the game planning to par the first three holes. Just par the first three holes. For heaven's sake, don't go out and think you're going to birdie the first two and get two up on your opponent and thereafter crush him, but just par them. So if you do that... Um, well, that's fine. You can then tackle him there afterwards. But if you birdie one of the holes, he said, you'll feel better. And uh, that will give you the confidence you need. Um, whereas if you start thinking, I'm going to have two birdies to start, and I'm going to get this guy, uh, and you don't do it, there you are on the third tee thinking, oh dear. And you feel deflated and disappointed in yourself, and the confidence tends to, to fade away. So... Quite what Ernie's told uh, each player 
about what each match, how they should tackle it. I don't know, but uh, I hope there's an element of that. If you go back to 1998, you know, the only victory, it was that first day that stunned the American team. They, they didn't know what had struck them. And thereafter, they never recovered because they'd expected that uh, they'd be in the lead in the first day and they weren't. And thereafter, their captain, uh, uh, Mr. Nicklaus, he, he simply didn't know what to do with them. He was probably never behind in a match himself, Jack. He'd probably never encountered anything like it mm. either. That's exactly so, right. So International, that, good chance, do you think? Well, a battle of expectations. Um, the international team obviously starts with much lower expectations than uh, the mightiest team ever to leave the shores of America. One uh, has nothing to lose and one has everything to lose, exactly, don't they? And at yeah. some point that pressure must... And a reputation to, to protect, as I've said yesterday. Possibly the greatest player of all time. How could bit, he lose? But he's in the top two. There. And playing plus captaining, there's a, there's a... If anybody in the world is up to it, we know who's up to it, and he would be the one, but it still is a tall task. Tony, have you had time to think about what might unfold on the course? I think for the purposes of the competition or the future of the, the cup itself, a close contest is almost uh, an absolute... Regardless of the final result, it has to be close, doesn't it? Uh, well, yes, clearly. Uh... I'd like, there's a couple of things I'd like to. Uh, there's a, there's a, I think there's a bit of a query over Dustin Johnson. He's had an injury. He hasn't been playing a lot. And Ricky Fowler's come in uh, in place of Brooks Kepka, and he hasn't been playing much golf either. So it'll be interesting to see how Tiger manages that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he manages Patrick Reed. I wouldn't be surprised if he paired himself with, with Patrick Reed in, in the foursomes and four-ball matches. Uh, the other aspect that I'm really looking... that I'm keen to, to look at is some of these younger fellas, particularly in the international team, Joachim Neiman. He's got uh, huge potential. He's made uh, huge leaps and bounds. Uh, he only won the Latin American Amateur Championship in 2018. I think, or two, I think it was 2017 or 18. It was 17. Oh, it, 17. Wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. Wasn't long ago no. He's only 21 or 22. Yeah, right. He's very a young. Winner. Yeah. Um, and him, I think the, the Korean players got, yeah. he, he was rookie of the year. So what I'd really like to see is these guys make a name for themselves. Yeah. They're on the world stage. This is their real opportunity to, to take it and run with it. And that that uh, I'm I'm hoping that they do yeah. that. What, what better way for a young player's career to take a step up than to be a part of a team that's beaten the great Tiger Woods and his uh, no, uh, his army? There's no doubt from. this American team. It's it's an unbelievably oh. powerful team. <laughs> they always are. The Americans are never not but, strong. But, but I think American golf is is yeah. perhaps more dominant than we've seen it in a long yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's like an uphill putt versus a. Nasty downhill putt. I see the Americans as having the nasty downhill putt. <laughs> uh, if they're not careful, they'll lose everything. They'll right go way past. past the hole and right. they'll bogey it. But uh, as you say, the young fella from Latin America or Korea or whatever, he's got the uphill putt. He yeah. can do anything he wants. He's got the. It's tabula rasa for them. There's nothing on paper. Uh, all they've got there is the chance to put their name into history. Whereas. The man with the downhill putt, he's yeah. got everything to lose. To lose yeah. And, of course, he might run at six feet past and hear those awful words, still yours. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you just get. sit there and don't say yeah, anything. Don't look at him. Is that, you know, I think that's, I think that's that might be yours. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. How, how do you say, oh, dear, in Korean? <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been fantastic to chat. I could sit here for hours and talk to both of you and Andrew. We'll talk over the week and Tony will talk over the week. But for the purposes of the podcast, all I can say is, Thank you very much, and thank you to Royal Melbourne. It's a gift to the world, and it's a fantastic thing that the world gets to see Royal Melbourne. It's an important facility. It's a style of golf that's important that we see at least some of in this modern world, and it'll be wonderful to see how these modern players tackle it. So, Tony, thank you. It's a pleasure, Rob. And, Andrew, always thank you. Great I will come, come back any time and often and call, call Senator Rule for a game. <laughs> with, with hickories. <laughs> oh, yes. Of course. Fantastic. Thank you, Jen. Well, I'm not sure about you, Adrian. It was, I'm not sure whether you got the sense there. It was terrific to sit and talk with, uh, with Andrew and Tony about what, what it's like to be a member here and why the club does sort of make itself available. It's a, it's a massive infrastructure here this week, I've got to say. The imposition on the club is enormous. 
the entrance to the course is over at Sandringham Golf Course, the golf course across the road. So you yep. park there and you actually enter there. You walk across some of Sandringham, then out onto, is it Cheltenham Road that runs past Royal Melbourne, I think, that divides yep. the two courses. Yep. You walk out onto there, up the road, and in through the front gate to get to the media centre. So that's how big. Nice. There's a huge fan village over there on Sandringham. That's how big the infrastructure is. It's, just, it's no small inconvenience, I've got to tell you. It's amazing, isn't it, to see the impact of a tournament of this size that has on a golf course. I was looking at Shinnecock Hills when the US Open was there, just at the aerials that you could see coming in from the course and and wondering to myself just how long it takes for that land to recover after such a big event when you've got all of the infrastructure and built up uh, grandstands and buildings and all the wiring and plumbing and everything that goes all over the place. I just noticed this morning, you walk past the loading dock and there's generators in there, but not generators as we might think of them for a caravan. Huge things, the size of small trucks, three or four of them lined up in the driveway to run all the power. It's extraordinary. Right. Yeah, that's right. And it's amazing to think of just such a delicate ecosystem Mm. that some of these golf courses are. Like it really struck me with Shinnecock Hills because it's just that beautiful sort of, well, it's almost sort of like prairie land, isn't it? You know, mm. you know in a way. But then you've got uh, the heathland at Royal Melbourne. It is something that the club and uh, Richard Forsyth and, and his crew have worked very hard to recover and, and sustain and, and to uncover new species and things like that. But then it just sort of gets clobbered with, with traffic and buildings and stuff. And I don't know, it, it must be, a, it's a big imposition on the club and, a good part of a year that the members are um, affected by it uh, and visitors who come to, to see the course. Um, so anyway, and then, and then who knows how long that the nature part of it takes to recover. To recover. And I suppose for all of that, though, Adrian, all that's correct, the upside is that as a member here, you get to see how the very best players in the world, including one of the greatest players ever, gets to and handles and deals with your course, so there must be a sense of excitement about Take that. Take on the course. I can't imagine how Tiger would go at Mangrove Mountain, and I'll I'll never get to find <laughs> out. But as a member here at Royal Melbourne, I'll get to see it for sure. So let's maybe shift things well, a bit. We just Sorry. on that, though, I've, I've always liked your analogy of it's a, like a virtuoso being given access to a Stradivarius. And uh, I, I think that's, you know, hopefully that's what we'll see this, uh, this week. But it was touched upon a little bit in your discussion that... Um, it may well be that we don't see anything like that and it's just a bunch of disappointing bombing drives and and wedges to the middle of greens and lots of two putts. It, no doubt it'll be a putting contest where people leave themselves in bad positions on the green and yeah. risk a three-putt. Um, but uh, will we see people rolling the ball in and, and playing the strategy of the ball feeding off slopes and things like that funnily when enough, they're hitting wedges into these greens? Enough, we, might, we might start to see it by Saturday or Sunday when the course will dictate it'll have repelled some of that aerial golf that some of these guys will have tried and won't be used to it being repelled. Once that's been repelled, they're not silly. They learn fast. And they're all capable of playing those beautiful bump and run shots around the greens. They just don't get the opportunity to do it much. They're not called on to do it much. So I hope we get to see a bunch of that stuff. I think we probably will. Just back to the Tiger thing. I was a bit disappointed, and I blame myself for this as much as anybody. He had the press conference yesterday with Ernie Els, and I was sitting in there, and just by the time I'd thought of it, 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 the microphone had sort of passed me by. But I wish somebody had asked him a bit more about the golf course because this course's impact on him personally and directly has been quite profound. He's talked about it in the past and the influence of here on his own design work. He hasn't designed a lot of courses, but those that he has... There's been elements of this course that have been built into that. And that's, that's a pretty big deal, uh, I think, and says something. And as you say, for a player of his ability with his golf mind, for this course to have had that sort of impact, it tells you something special about the golf course, I think. In a way, I don't know that a press conference like that is the place where he's going to open up about um, really deep insights on that sort of thing. Someday somebody will get him on a podcast or he'll write a book on golf course architecture and we'll get the opportunity to really delve into his thoughts on that but i can't imagine him going very deep in a press conference on that sort of thing tiger if you're listening feed the ball is the place for that get in touch with (laughs) derek 
And, uh, Definitely. He'll talk yeah. on the Talk and Golf Network, so we all get to win. That would be terrific. Let's talk about the competition, Adrian, and some of the things that we didn't get to in that chat, which we've just gone over in our little chat there. You can't help but be, if you're into course architecture, overwhelmed by Royal Melbourne. I suppose the big story of the week, I'm not sure how it's been sort of read there, but here on site, it's all been about Patrick Reed and what happened in the Bahamas, the fallout from that has been just extraordinary. Yesterday, the way they've been doing the press conference here, they bring in six players at a time. So six US players came in yesterday and they set them up in six separate spots around the interview room. So they weren't all up the front being interviewed together. You chose which player you wanted to go and speak to and you went and joined that group. I can tell you, Adrian, this will come as no surprise, fairly sizable crowd around Patrick Reed. <laughs> he came I guess in. it's a fairly efficient way to do it, um, split them up like that. Uh, um, who had the least amount of people around them? Well, funnily enough, I had decided already before the press conference there was no need for all of us to be at Patrick Reed. We've got other people from Golf Australia magazine who I'm working for this week here on site. So there was no need for all of us to be over there. So I decided I'd, I'd like to go and talk to the other Patrick, Patrick Cantlay. Ah, I'm on a bit yes. of a mission to try and, as, wherever I can, get some thoughts from the players about course architecture and whether they've got any interest in it doing what they do for a living. Well, it turns out another local reporter here, Melissa Woods from AAP, she'd obviously had a similar idea. I think she had a different bunch of questions. So for the first few minutes, it was just her and I, and she had a heap of questions prepared, so I just let her go and recorded the answers from Patrick, and then I got to ask a few, and a couple of others came over. Doug Ferguson from AP came in at the end. And I've got to tell you, it was a, I was much more impressed with Patrick Cantlay than I expected to be. He kind of got it, the course architecture bit, intuitively. I think mm-hmm. he'd figured out bits about Royal Melbourne. He talked about getting the ball on the ground and playing the angles and the ball feeding away from flags and greens if you didn't have it going in the right shape. And then in the next breath, when he was asked about modern golf course architecture, he sort of espoused the theory, it's too wide, there's not enough rough, we need fairways to be narrower, (laughs) rough to be longer, bordering those narrower fairways. So a bit of a mixed bag from Patrick Cantlay. But uh, Webb Simpson was in there, Xander Shoffley, Patrick Reed, Justin Thomas, and I can't remember who the other one was. But Webb Simpson, funny enough, probably had the least people. I was tempted to go to Webb once I saw Melissa waiting to talk to Patrick because I'd sort of missed my exclusive. But I really did want to... I had a headline, you know. I had a headline in mind, so I had to talk, you know, the other Patrick. So I stuck with with Patrick Cantlay, and I wrote a story about that this morning. So the vibe on the ground here is... But that has really overshadowed almost everything. It's come up at every single press conference. Yeah, unsurprisingly. And it's the last thing anybody in the golf world really needs, isn't it? It's, it's forced everybody to come out with an opinion on this thing. And the, for the people who are in an uncomfortable position of perhaps having to play with Reed in the future, because clearly the PGA Tour aren't taking the necessary disciplinary steps that they should be taking with this. So that's put that's that's set the ball in motion for this uncomfortable position that everybody needs to take where you're making a decision of, you know, what's your, what sort of a relationship are you going to have with Patrick Reed in the future? Do you want something that's going to allow you to play your best golf when you're around him? Or do you want it to be some combative thing, which could be a distraction for your own career or something? So hence... Which he feeds someone, on. He, he thrives in that environment. We've seen yeah. that already. He likes that combative environment. It's, it's when he's at his best. So that suits him. It suits him, apparently. and But he might have some sort of cognitive dissonance going with this whole thing where he genuinely believes he didn't cheat mm. um you know i i, I feel like uh, I, I mean i'm a nobody i can i can say what i want really nobody's really <laughs> listening but in my, i believe he cheated and uh i believe he cheated with intent and then not only that he lied about it afterwards mm. um and he's lied again from what i've heard in the uh well, he's, press conferences. he's actually doubled down uh, yeah, that's his, right. His take yesterday was that if others, I think Cameron Smith didn't call him a cheat, but when talking about the incident, used the word cheating and not putting up with cheating from anybody, that that's BS, which is all a fair enough position to take. And uh, Reid doubled down and said, well, you know, we, we, we've gone now from just wanting to beat these guys to making it personal. Uh, so you can sort of see mm-hmm. how he, he feeds on that. Well, Ultimately, okay. I think... Adrian, so, so he's sorry. not the bad guy in this situation, is what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, what I mean. Kind of. And that cognitive dissonance, you, you might be right about that. Ultimately, to me, the whole thing ends up being sad. I mean, the outrage is legitimate and it's genuine. And I think we've all felt it. You can't, as a golfer, watch somebody do what he did 
see how it's unfolded from there and be comfortable with that. You can understand why it might have been the way it's been, the decision that was made about the penalty and everything that's happened since. But it's ultimately sad. And it, because mm. it's, not that, it is, yeah. it's not that this sort of thing has never happened in golf. It's always been around in golf. But it's just such a public display of it. And it looks from the outside like such a thumbing of the rules, just thumbing your nose at the it, rules. It That's does. what he looks to have done. And, of course, he's going to get away with it for all the reasons we know. You can't prove what his intent was and all of those other things. And that's just, it's sad for the game and for everybody who loves the game. There's a lot of people from other sports commentating, going, what are you all getting so worked up about in golf? Well, we're getting so worked up because the game, for a lot of us who don't play competitively for loads and loads of money, is built around that Bobby Jones theory of calling a penalty on himself and when congratulated saying, it's like congratulating a man for not robbing a bank. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, you know, it fits in so neatly, though, with what we see of a lot in the modern world, where even in the face of overwhelming evidence, you can simply say, I didn't do it as a defence. But somehow that that is a valid defence these days. And if you say it often enough, some percentage of people will believe it. Um, and, but I, I think the, the way to combat that is to actually call it out for what it is and say... It is indeed cheating, and don't let any don't let what he says uh, sway you from change it. From that position. It's just sim- and the more people who actually just call it out, the better. But yeah. unfortunately, there's a willingness overall to sort of fall into line behind the well. He says he didn't do it, so that gives that gives everybody an easy way out. And uh, but I really feel like it's one of those wrong side of history type of things where you don't want to. Uh, be ashamed in the future of no. yep. of supporting him because he'll bring you down like everybody besides with him. <laughs> he'll bring you down eventually because you've made it you know, fairly sort of behavior. where you stand, Adrian, and that's... Well, this sort of behaviour is not isolated in the future. No. He'll do it again and, and you'll look stupid for having supported him on this occasion. So. And look, to his credit, someone we've often disagreed with. We've had him on the show. He's fantastic to talk to. Brandall Chambly, we had him on the old IC Gold podcast. He's been extremely mm-hmm. strong. Uh, in this yeah. case, and an awful lot of people are finding themselves begrudgingly agreeing with Randall for the first time. But he is a somebody with something yeah. to lose, and full credit to him for standing by that. And in fact, full credit to Brandall for standing by the things that I disagree with him about that he does believe in. <laughs> That's to be admired in a person, like Adam Scott's stance on the Olympics. All of that aside, Adrian, I guess, what does it mean for the competition? It's probably not the focus of what we talk about most of the time. We're more interested in the esoteric issues surrounding golf, but we've got the President's Cup is happening here, and it really does. It's, it, it's a shame you're not here. I am missing you. Uh, that's on tape now. Unless I edit it out, everybody will hear that. I wish you were here. The vibe is fantastic, and ultimately it's going to be a competition, a match play competition. What effect does the Patrick Reed issue have on the American team and the international team, do you think? Because this has engulfed both teams, whether they like it or not. Well, I'm sure I'm sure I'd really enjoy being down there, actually. It sounds like you're having a great time. Um, the, the effect on the American team, I, I think... Randall actually nailed this with his comments about it'll, it'll appear to everybody as if it's business as usual and this is a well-oiled machine with nothing. There's nothing to see here. You know, we've all moved on. But the actual, the underlying fabric of the team will have been deeply affected by this and all will not be well uh, within that team. So regardless of whatever veneer they put over it, this, this is going to have affected the American team greatly. Who are they going to partner with Reed, like, for a start? Well, that's um, right. And that person's just going to be, like, walking like a zombie around, yeah. pretending to be okay with it. Like, it, these are these are competitors week in, week out. And Some of them were in that field last week and may well yeah. have lost money because of that incident that happened. So don't right. think, they're not going to brush it off as lightly as they think. It's interesting that he will play better because of it because of the pressure. But I agree with you. I don't think it'll help. And in foursomes and four ball, it's not going to help them as a team because whoever's playing with them, and it's likely to be Patrick Cantlay. They've played the Zurich Classic together the last couple of years. So there's some history there, and they've performed quite well. But no matter which way you cut it, that feeling in that team can't be, as you say, uh, fantastic. In a, in a room full of professional golfers watching that on television, as Mike Clayton would say, you can't unsee that as a fellow competitor it, yeah. ever. Uh, including for this week. On the flip side, what does it do for the internationals? I suppose the easy assumption is to say that it must help them, but I wonder if that's necessarily the case, Adrian. 
Not really. I mean, you, again, I mean, nobody comes out of this looking good. Like you said, it's sad for golf all round. But uh, the internationals, if they try and rub rub their noses in it, it's, it looks like you're punching down. Um, and uh, that nobody wants to do that. Really, the best thing the internationals could do is just get on with playing good golf and focusing on their own games. Um, I'm concerned that the crowds will say something uh, inappropriate. Like, if this hadn't happened, the chances are you would get these great Australian crowds where uh, they're going to be pretty raucous in support of the internationals, but they're going to be knowledgeable and appreciative and respectful to the US. I think this opens the door for some idiots to go and be disrespectful, and I really fear that there'll be some of that this week. So um, I'll, I'll be sort of watching with interest to see whether uh, we as a nation can host this tournament without any ugliness yeah. as I, a result of this. Yeah, I agree. I, I like you. I hope it's not the case. It hasn't been to this stage. I've not heard anything from today. Yesterday... Uh, a wag in the crowd welcomed Patrick to the first tee for his practice round as the excavator. And I think that yeah. was enjoyed by the crowd and probably by Patrick himself. And as, as well, I Some good-natured stuff should that's be right. fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what we get. I hope that's what we get. But I, like you, do have concerns. People are rightly extremely upset about what's happened uh, and understand the results. Certainly a certain us, as they call us, Logue, purists, which is thrown around <laughs> as an insult quite often these days. Uh, uh, tend to be quite upset about it. There's a lot of people in golf sort of like that. That aside, what are you looking forward to this week? We'll wrap it up shortly because we don't want to go into it. What are you looking forward to this week? You, of course, will unfortunately be watching on television, which is a real shame, I think. And for all who haven't been to Royal Melbourne, at least you've been here and you can make a connection with some of the topography. There's nothing quite like being here. What are you looking forward to seeing most this week? Well, if it hadn't been for this Patrick Reid thing, I, I think the talking point of the week would have been how huge Bryson DeChambeau is. Oh, so I was like, like interested to see. He's enormous. He's Un- he, he promised us un- he was going to be massive. Yeah. He's, he's lived up to his promise. Yeah, he's unrecognisably huge. Uh, when I first saw him, I didn't realise who it was. I thought he was one of the US security detail. Right. Uh, that's okay. how big he is. He's like fully built, ripped and stacked. Of course, didn't uh, help him having three cracks at uh, fifth green on Royal Melbourne West yesterday, the par three that I think will play as the third hole on this course. Three goes at it. Uh, eight iron or nine iron they would have been hitting. Yeah, didn't find the green yeah, surface right. with any of them in the practice rounds. So, really? Yeah. It's a pretty big target too. It is. The pin was on the front and you can only assume they're trying to play shots they may not play in competition to get it close. Uh, but yeah, I think he had three goes at it, two short and one missed right from memory. So... Size, yeah, okay. maybe size does matter, Adrian. Who knows? Well, it's just a connector hole, really. From That's the, right. Just get you from the fourth green to the, to the sixth. To the even better sixth. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but no, look, it's, it's an interesting hole. I, I want to see them play there. I'm surprised they're hitting it in the bunkers, though. Like, it, I, I felt that these guys with the nine iron in their hands, it's more a challenge of hitting the right part of the green. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. giving themselves a decent go at birdie. But, um, yeah, I think I, th- Good. I, th- I think they like us have probably seen that footage we've seen over and over the last couple of weeks of both Bubba Watson and Jason Day putting off that green from behind mm. the flag, yeah. and I suspect that there's a real fear about going past the flag for that very reason. I'll, I I agree with you. I think that corner of five, six, and seven, which will play as three, four, and five on the composite course, the third, the fourth, and the fifth holes, that to me is the joy. That's that's the loop of love. Uh, I love all three of those holes, and the mind is engaged all the way, one hundred percent, from that third tee to the fifth tee or the fifth green when you putt out. I'll be really looking forward to watching that. I spoke with Mike Clayton. I had a bit of a walk. I won't play. Them. I recorded a couple of little bits and pieces, but it was probably not enough time to listen to them. And yep. he sort of suggested three great holes, but the reality is what you'll probably see is players playing for pars, and most likely for most of the matches, three halves. And just getting pars, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I really feel like that's how the golf is going to play out yeah. for the most part this week where people are just hitting the greens, sometimes hitting them in the wrong spots, but they're only going to be hitting nine irons and wedges to a lot of these greens. So they're going to sometimes be hitting them into the wrong spots and there'll be a challenge of can you, are you good enough to two-part or three-part? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like Andrew Thompson can't help but wait for the diabolical errors where we see mm-hmm. players in positions that are borderline unplayable, and we get to see how good. Yeah, if somebody hits it over back left of six, well, yep. six west, so yep. fourth, fourth, in yep. the composite. Yeah, uh, that's that is diabolical there, and 
but yeah, it's an easy. You can make that mistake if you if you're tempted to go for a back left pin there. We might see that yeah, in four. I, I think Clates wrote about this. That temptation is the key. Yes. It was, yeah. it was mentioned. I think Andrew mentioned it. So That's right. Temptation is the key. You can the flag. tempted into going for a shot, looking down at a perfectly good lie. You've got a short <laughs> iron in your hands. And, you're one uh, of the best players in the world. One Surely. of the best players in the world. You know your yardages. You've just got to hit it to there. You've done it a million times on the range. How hard exactly. The margin for error is not much. I, look, I, I just still can't get past this feeling that they're actually just going to actually execute those shots. Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> Firm quite greens possibly. and all, I, I just feel like we're going to see. Um, we will, we will uh, wait and see. A demonstration of what the modern game can do to yeah. do a great classic course. Agreed. But in reality, the very worst exhibition of golf here by this field of players will be absolutely fantastic to watch, Adrian. And so mm-hmm. even if it does yeah. descend into that, whilst it will be slightly disappointing, it will still be fabulous to watch and certainly to it's be. a great here. stage to see that on. Yeah. yeah, and if if we can have a close contest is the key to it all, this might be the President's Cup that saves the President's Cup. If we can have a close contest and or an international win, that will go an awful long way to installing some respect into this event, which it kind of lacks. So we hope for that. Let's hope. Yeah, indeed. We hope for that. What do you, what do you pick? Uh, I, I think the internationals will win. Uh, I do feel that the, the Reed thing has to have divided the US team. There's no question that they are. We were surprised by how quickly they learnt the course in 2011. And there's no question they're equally prepared this time around because that's how they do things. If the Reed thing hadn't happened, maybe. But I tend to agree with Andrew Thompson. The internationals have nothing to lose, and the U.S. has everything to lose. And I loved his analogy of the eight-foot uphill putt versus the four-foot downhill putt. Yep, they're closer to the hole, but they've got the more difficult putt, and there's more pressure on their more difficult putt than our straightforward Don't let putt. Scott Fawcett hear that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, that's okay. He's, uh, he blocked me on Twitter, so I won't have to put up with, the, with any of his feet. Or even Brandle, you've got a putt from five, five o'clock or something, I think, is it? More putts are hold from five o'clock, according oh, Is that to right? I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It'd be a classic good-good situation, though, wouldn't it? Hey? Yeah. <laughs> it would be a good situation. <laughs> See if there's a good-good offered in any of those situations. I'd Adrian, probably take it. Fantastic to talk to you. We will no doubt be texting and talking back and forth all week as things unfold and we get to see things. Uh, have a think about coming down, mate. Spend the money, buy a ticket, come down for a day. You'd love it. It'd be fantastic. Thanks for having a chat today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Rob.